Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. Today, I'm super psyched to share a conversation with my dear friend, Deeroy Peraza. Deeroy is a renegade creative hell-bent on crafting compelling narratives for social impact agencies as the founder of HyperAct. Listen in as we talk about visual storytelling, crafting your message for impact, and how you can't afford not to communicate well. More information about HyperAct can be found in the show notes. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Finally, please drop me a line if there are any topics or guests that you'd be interested in, riawong at gmail.com. Enjoy. Hi, Ria. It's nice to have you on the podcast. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry you're feeling sick, but thank you for being on anyway. Not a problem. So, dear retelling, who are you and what is HyperAct? So, I think in the, uh, my core, I'm a designer and a, uh, I like to think of myself as an entrepreneur. I like to think of myself as a connector of people and as a cheerleader, as an optimist, uh, as a problem solver, uh, and as a communicator. HyperAct is a social impact design firm. Uh, We've been around for 17 years now. We were started by a partnership between myself and Juliet Seltzer. Both of us are immigrant kids who met at art school had a lot of similar values in the work ethic. And uh, out of that sort of mutual respect and out of our shared feeling that we were very lucky to have opportunities that our parents fought very hard for and that this country provided us, we've steered our studio to really focus on creating opportunity and, and equity so that all Americans and all people who live in this country have the opportunities that we have because that isn't the case. That is so beautiful. So you anticipated my next question, which is why the social impact space. Mm. Um, When did you more explicitly make the pivot from design to actual strategy and uh, sort of the bigger communications piece? So I would say that our history is marked by some pretty big devastating events, Mm -hmm. and those all impacted our decision-making. It uh, started with, our, our history starts on September 7th, 2001. That's when HyperAct was born. It's four days before 9-11. And so that provided us like quite the period of, of uh, soul searching and, and time to think about what we were doing with ourselves and how to sort of begin a business. We were both 22 or 23 at the time. And so off we went, uh, neither one of us being design majors or both illustration majors, neither one of us having a business degree. And so we learned how to try to run a design business. Around 2008, after trying a lot of different things and learning a lot of hard lessons, uh, two things were happening. One, Barack Obama appeared on the scene and sort of changed the political discourse in this country for the first time probably since the 60s and turned it into a real sort of hopeful progressive discourse that engaged a much younger audience than than had been engaged in politics, at least in my lifetime. And um, the Great Recession was happening, which affected us 
almost like from an economic standpoint, affected us as badly as 9-11 did because for half a year, nobody was paying, nobody was calling, and we were in the red. So by the end of 2009, we had some big decisions to make, and it was kind of a time for change. And so we decided, let's just go for it. Let's just do what we love doing and what feels right. And at that time, it was to draw a line in the sand and say, we are a studio that creates meaningful design for the common good. That was our tagline starting in 2010. And we edited our portfolio to focus only on the work that we had done for local organizations, nonprofits, cultural organizations, clients who we felt were actually creating meaningful content, meaningful work, and who were trying to improve people's lives. That immediately changed who was calling us up for work. And over the course of the next several years, we really were able to shed our previous clients who didn't kind of fit that neat description and to focus on what we now define as the social impact space. Uh, a lot of things happened between 2010 and today. I like to think of them as sort of phases in communication learning. In, in the social impact space in 2010, it was primarily still a print world. There was a lot of annual reports and cases for funding being printed. Digital work was pretty limited to just sort of brochure websites. So we did a lot of that work. Around 2013, 2014, the space started for the first time really thinking about shifting funds from print to the digital space and thinking more about digital storytelling instead of, uh, or at least digital reports instead of print reports. Right. That first wave was very much taking print thinking and putting it online. But it was significant because for the first time they were trusting that the digital space allowed them to reach a much broader audience, a different kind of audience that wasn't just like their funders or their or practitioners or their uh, um, stakeholders. It was the general public. Now, let me um, ask you a question because it sounds like you you found a lot of success in really clarifying and specifying your mission and your purpose. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. is that a thing that you also help your clients to do? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the core things that we help our clients to do. At the beginning of every uh, branding exercise, before we as designers can translate any organization's uh, DNA into a visual identity, we need to know what that DNA is. And that DNA needs to be consistent, concise, and everybody needs to agree with it. Often what we find is that the process of branding is more about the process of building bridges of communication within organizations. Um, you know, we work with different kinds of organizations, some very big with a lot of departments and, and people leading those departments, some very small with very impassioned people who have more autonomy in decision-making. Some are very top-down, some are very egalitarian and consensus-based. And they all require different approaches uh, to sort of manage the process of decision-making. So a lot of what we actually do, you never see in the final product because it's that 
important internal process of getting everybody in the room, getting them to think together, getting them to express what their organization is about, what they strive for, what their goals are, why they do what they do, and getting them to say that in a brief statement. Wow. You can imagine that people from different departments with different agendas and different mm-hmm. functions have very different ideas of what those things are. And often in their day-to-day work, they don't have opportunities to really align on this stuff because they're just hustling and going, doing the thing that they do. Right. So, um, yeah, working with us is sort of a respite to that and provides a much-needed opportunity for everybody to just sit and align. And how long does that process usually take? It, it depends on the scale of, of the client and the number of stakeholders, but typically a, a rebranding process which involves everything from that alignment, then positioning work, messaging work, mission, vision, values work, the visual identity, and ultimately the organization's website, which is everybody's primary uh, um, showcase of their brand. Uh, It's like a six to nine month process. Wow. What are the elements of good visual storytelling that our listeners can start to think about in their own content? There's been quite the the renaissance of of uh, visual storytelling over the last few years, in large part due to the kinds of interactive stories that we see news the news media create. Publications like the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post. What makes a good story is being able to create a personal connection to human beings and their their narrative. So. You know, often organizations come from a very policy wonk perspective. They speak in jargon that's not very accessible. It's very kind of insider baseball. And that stuff turns people off. That is for practitioners and for insiders, but it's not going to get you outside of your domain. Right. So it's really about humanizing the storytelling and, and showing how it can apply to real people's lives how it can affect real people's lives. And that means that the language needs to be general public facing, plain English. Uh, It needs to be a little bit more casual Mm. and relatable. It It needs to be accompanied by visuals that are compelling, either because you can connect very directly to the subjects of the story or to the places where the stories take place, or to the effects of what's happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to really place you in the story. Yeah. Uh, so the production value of media that accompanies the story is really important. You're actually hitting on a pet peeve of mine, which I think nonprofit websites in general are not great, and bad photography in particular really... Mm-hmm. It pains me because it's a, it's not that expensive to get good photography. Yeah, I think there's a there's this kind of misconception that anything good costs prohibitive amounts of money, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, I guess in, in, that can be true in some ways, but for photography, illustration, even video these days, it's really not that much more expensive. Mm-hmm to hire a photographer, to hire a videographer, and it is to buy stock photography. And stock photography is terrible. It's not real and it feels 
immediately. Like Im- yeah, I mean, you know, the audience is sophisticated. Yeah. It's not they can sniff that out. Right. And it's critical in the organizations that are focused on affecting change in real people's lives to reflect the people whose whose lives are trying to impact. Mm-hmm. In a legitimate, authentic way, mm-hmm. not like some stand-in stock person. For, yeah. For you bring up an interesting point because I felt like your work has always been very intelligent in the sense that you don't assume that the people reading it are, um, for lack of a better term, idiots. I think your respect for the intelligence of your readers mm-hmm. and people consuming the content is something that really has set you apart as a as an agency. Making communication accessible doesn't mean like dumbing it down to first grade level mm-hmm. uh, it, it means just speaking in human you know more casual terms I like to kind of frame hyperact as sort of the the NPR of the design world mm. you know we're we're not gonna treat you like a baby but we are going to try to give you as much background information as possible, try to contextualize uh, data and relate it to real stories and, um, yeah, sort of help you fill in the blanks along the way. I think that one of the challenges of nonprofit is to understand how to best tell their story, and some are data-driven and some are more narrative-driven. And I'm wondering... Do you think that that's the dichotomy? And if so, what is the balance between the two? It's funny. So we, we um, describe digital storytelling pieces as data-supported, uh, narrative-driven. Mm. And we describe so the, data the visualization baby. as uh, narrative-supported, data-driven. So it's really just about like kind of how we balance which one we sort of play up more. Mm. But they both are present mm-hmm. in both. And data visualization is sort of a broad term, which can scare people because it sounds complicated. Mm-hmm. But in, in real terms, for most organizations, data visualization means like simple graphics that deliver high-impact numbers. Mm-hmm. Things like there's 70% of the, of the population of inmates right now is black versus 30% white, whereas 30 years ago... It was the reverse. That helps you see how things have changed over the last 30 years. It's just a simple fact. Right. That kind of thing is used often by, by organizations, uh, social media, fodder. Mm-hmm. It's used to just kind of illustrate points along the stream of a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we use it more in digital storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really simple, simple illustrations of data mm-hmm. as they relate to a story. Whereas when we're thinking of a data-driven piece, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's more of, a, of a, an exploration tool mm-hmm. that is you know, usually a pretty intense data set that's hard to parse when you look at it in spreadsheet form and hard to draw me- any meaning from. And we are trying to design a user interface that allows you to draw meaning from it and to be able to connect that meaning to story. So the best example I think that we've created is the Refugee Project, which is a project that we created in 2014 and we have evolved every year since then. It's an atlas of forced human migration using uh, the UN Refugee Agency's data, which is very granular. It's uh, accounting for every refugee leaving 
their origin country and arriving in an asylum country. And so being able to, to see the big picture and see over time, over the last 45 years, where have the largest migrations of refugees come from, where have they gone, and then on top of that, what has caused them, allows you to, re to, to really dig in and explore that. If you just show the numbers, they're just numbers. If you add on top of the numbers the layer of what has happened yeah. politically, what religious persecution happened, what you know, post-colonial craziness happened, like all of that helps you understand why the numbers are what they are. Let's say I'm a small to medium-sized-ish nonprofit with an incredibly limited budget for, mm -hmm. or perhaps no budget for communication. What are the easy things that I could do right now to make my communication better, assuming I couldn't afford HyperX services? I have some pretty actionable, simple steps. First of all, I would say that an organization starting out, a small organization, shouldn't try to afford HyperX. Right. We're not really optimized to serve that kind of organization. We work with organizations that have, that are a bit more established and have sort of more legacy issues to deal with mm -hmm. and repositioning to, to undergo. An organization that starts out should really try to bootstrap as much as possible and not spend tons and tons of money on design, on, on anything, really. You should try to do as much as possible internally or with your network of expert friends that I'm sure most people have. The first thing I would start with is just making sure that you have a very clear purpose, mission, vision, and organizational values. Because you can't have a brand until you have, you can't truly have a brand that reflects your organization until you have those things in place. And it's hard to do anything as an organization, like hire other people or get them to understand why you're important, why you exist without those things in place. So that's step one. That's hard. It's harder than it sounds. It's harder to do by yourself. It's often a lot easier to work with an outside partner to help you through that process. Uh, I suggest when starting to start with just smart friends who can be a sounding board because all you really need is a sounding board. As it gets more complicated and more people are involved and there's more sort of untangling that needs to happen, then you need more experienced partners to help with that facilitation process, which is the work that we try to do. But I think initially, you just need a good sounding board and you need to just capture that. Then, when it comes to capturing that in design, the two pieces of advice I would give are to keep it super simple and to not try to over-design. Use existing tools like Squarespace and... Canva. Uh, yeah, Canva. There's a ton of stuff now. Those are great tools to start lean and to just get something up and running. The most important thing is to just get something up quick. Iterate on it, have people react to it, learn, and keep sort of iterating and building. Start there. And don't over-design it. Don't feel like you need to have like a perfect logo. I would suggest just keeping it simple typography pick a nice simple font and go. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you have a friend in the family or a friend who, a, a, a designer in the family or, or uh, a friend who's a designer who can help initially, that's great as well. If you're a small organization, 
you shouldn't be investing tons and tons of money on this stuff. Yeah. Yet. I think that's a good point because I think a lot of people tend to overthink it with the idea that if we do this one thing, this one decision, it's going to unlock us in forever and ever because we're going to be like Nike. Right. Which, you know, I think it's... Organizations can evolve. You can pivot. You can reposition. There are enough tools out there to create a clean, simple base level presence that inspires trust, which is all that you're trying to do when you're creating a brand. It's all about inspiring trust and credibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, what really counts is what your organization actually does. Are you actually doing the thing you say doing the thing that you're doing? Are you, is the organization fulfilling its promise? Is it evolving? Is it changing? When, once that stuff starts happening and there's actual, like rich content there, rich ideas to think about, then, then you have to start thinking about sort of next level communications. Sounds like get something up, you know, be thoughtful about it, but don't overthink it and yep. get something up and going. One question I have for you is I think a lot of executive directors and particularly founders mm-hmm. get very attached to certain things or the way that they talk about their program and everything is important. How do you get them to shoot the unicorns? <laughs> uh, that's inevitable when it's your baby. It's, I mean, it happens to us. We're working on our site right now and we've been futzing with words endlessly because it has to be perfect. Uh, that's why it's important to work with an outside sounding board who just, you know, helps you just like pull the bandaid off real quick, real quick and helps you make quick decisions and, and just go. I, I, I would say to try to give yourself deadlines Mm. and to try to commit to getting things done by a certain time and not, and like just putting them down, letting them sit for a little bit, letting people react to it and then coming back to it and, and evolving if you're constantly always changing everything and you never settle and you never launch it because of that, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. And can we just reiterate the point about simple is better? Because so often I read mission statements and it's, they're like so broad and they're so grandiose and they're so complicated yeah. that I'm, I couldn't tell you exactly what they <clears throat> think. Yeah. So a couple things. I mean, it's, it's a lot like when you meet somebody who, is trying so hard to impress you that you're, they're just using all these words. Nobody knows what they mean. And you just, all you perceive from that person is that they're really insecure and they're trying real hard to impress you. People that are truly impressive don't feel like they're trying to impress you. They just, it just kind of comes through effortlessly. And I think that's the same thing that applies to brands. Uh, there are, so many jargony words in this space. I mean, we actually we actually created a, a, like a generator of random jargony words because there's just so many of them. I'm sure I've heard them hilarious. all in all sorts of combinations. It's called social good ipsum. That's so funny. Um, I'll yeah, link to they, that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun, actually. We use it to, for dummy presentations, <laughs> and clients are like, wait, did I give you that copy? Oh, wait, that doesn't make sense. Um... <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's just often easier to keep it as simple as possible. Don't overthink it. And what would you say about organizations that think of themselves as dual mission organizations? I have yet to find one that does that successfully. 
Mm, okay. I feel like there are, you know, there are organizations that have sort of a, you know, we do X, Y, and Z, but it's all around sort of the same sort of core mission. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of your pet peeves when you see nonprofit communications. Uh, my biggest pet peeve is that I find it's this idea of overcomplicating things and landing on a homepage and not really knowing what the organization does because they try to say they do so many things and they go such a roundabout way of saying it mm-hmm. that you don't know what they stand for and what they're ultimately after. Mm-hmm. And like the reality is like most people are going to land on your homepage, they're going to be there for like 30 seconds mm-hmm. and they need to have, they need to immediately take away some kind of feeling about, some kind of impression about your organization. If you throw like 20 issue tags at them and they're all like three words long with really long words and you give them like a paragraph of text to explain what your organization does with a lot of jargon in it, they're not going to know. We try to think of the information hierarchy and sort of peeling back the onion one layer at a time. As you go deeper into the onion, the communication gets a little bit more specific mm-hmm. and a little bit more granular and a little bit more, more intense. But on the outer shell, it's super simple. It's like immediate impression. You can read it. You can grasp digest what, it, grasp right. it, go. When I think about executive directors who need to carve out money for communications or are approaching funders for communications, A, I don't know if you can answer this question, but what budget would, would you recommend as a baseline? And, this, and B, what kind of ROIs can we expect if we invest in, in communications, if we have to justify it to our board or, or a fund? At our level, working with the size of organizations that we're working with, uh, organizational rebranding projects that, you know, it's like a complete rebrand and launching of a new site is in the neighborhood of like 150 to 250,000, depending on complexity. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually like a pretty great deal for the amount of work and the amount of value that organizations get out of that. The first value is that it's a process of alignment organization. Beyond the product that you get out of it, you're going to have staff that is going to understand what it is that you do, and they're all going to be on the same page. It's sort of like a long, drawn-out internal pep rally. Because at the end of the day, one of our metrics for success is does the staff feel more motivated, more proud of their organization, more willing to share with friends and family what their organization is about, what they do, that is something that we always strive for. People want to be proud of the place they work, and that affects how they work. So that is hard to measure, but that, has, that is a very tangible outcome of this process. Post-launch, you now have a platform that is built from the ground up to be much more sustainable and to make your life a lot easier in publishing content. So an organization like, like the Vera Institute of Justice, to c- carry on with the same example, they publish a lot of work. They have tons of researchers. They have a lot of programs. It was hard for them to publish all of the work and externalize all of it to the general public. 
a lot of it was kept internal because it's just such there was such a barrier in communicating. We build tools that make that really easy for people and that encourage them to use the digital storytelling sort of mentality when doing it. So it's not just like a report for practitioners. So there's various audiences in mind and so that so it's really easy and fun to publish. The other thing is, for most organizations, it's such a signal of having their shit together <laughs> that it really inspires funders mm. to, again, it's like an elevation in, in uh, credibility and in trust. Mm -hmm. So it really inspires funders to invest more in organizations because they can now see more of the work that's being done mm -hmm. through uh, the, the, the content that's being published. They can see that the organization feels like they know what they're about. They can communicate it. Mm -hmm. They're buttoned up and they have it together. Mm -hmm. If you think of the investment that goes into a gala, for example, often hundreds of thousands of dollars, which sounds scary, but that happens and organizations do that because they know that if they can sell a lot of seats at those tables, they're going to generate a lot more than the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they, they invested. And doing it. And that is for one event that happens on one day. Mm -hmm. This is a publishing platform that you're investing about the same amount or less than what you would invest in one gala that's going to be yielding results for the next three, four years and will hopefully set you up for a much smoother transition to the next iteration when technology yeah. moves forward. So I think obviously more donations is a easy thing to measure. Maybe additional folks visiting the website might be another thing to measure. But how do you measure, and I imagine this is something your clients might be interested in, is how do you measure impact or awareness of a brand or of a, of a cause? I mean, there's a lot of sort of hard metrics that, you know, things like uh, on a website, not just the number of visitors, but how much time they're spending on the site, how much time different types of content uh, um, encourage people to, to spend mm -hmm. on, on, on those pieces of content. How shareable that content is, how much people are engaging on social media with mm -hmm. the content and, sh and spreading it around. Those are all sort of baseline metrics. Mm -hmm. Beyond donations, there's also a, a lot of organizations use endorsements from well-known personalities, either celebrities or politicians or um, or social media figures, they're much more likely to want to partner with somebody who has a very strong presence. Mm -hmm. um, the impact thing is a kind of a hard thing to answer beyond that. A lot of our uh, of, of our impact measurements are qualitative. Mm -hmm. um, Asking clients for anecdotes. How has your experience changed since you launched this new website? What mm -hmm. new things have happened that wouldn't have happened before? Mm -hmm. uh, and those range from uh, new opportunities that happen externally, uh, new partnerships, mm -hmm. to internal... Uh, for example, um, one of the things that we often see is from an HR perspective that we have increases in 
I mean, like doubling, tripling the number of people applying to work at organizations just because of the fact that people can understand what the organization stands for. They get a better sense for the culture, yeah. for uh, the, the impact the organization has. So honestly, that's worth $100,000 right there. Yeah, I mean, it's that huge. one thing. I yeah. mean, we talk so much about the tight labor market nationally, but certainly within the nonprofit field. Attracting because... talent, yeah. And often, after the homepage, the, and for most organizations, the page that gets the most traffic on their site is... The careers page. Interesting. It's very rare that that's not the case hmm. because, you know, those are the people who are most motivated to really like dig deep and spend time on on, right. on the site. So if you can make an impression there mm-hmm. versus the you know field of, of peers, you're gonna get the you know best talent to be interested in working in yeah in your organization. That's priceless. Is there anything I we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about? I think some of the, a couple of the things that we are thinking about uh, as thought partners to our clients. I mentioned that that the world of communication in the social impact space sort of goes through a constant evolution. I think right now we're very deep in the digital storytelling phase of things, spending especially because most organizations are progressive and they're having to re-explain why their issues are important and why they matter and what truth is versus falsehood and et cetera. So there's a lot of digital storytelling that's very conducive to that. Uh, I think moving forward, the next wave is going to involve uh, a lot more digital products that allow users, people who interact with, with uh, an organization's site, to actually perform tasks, to use sites to their benefit, not just for passively consuming information. Things like, for example, um, we've been doing a lot of toolkits Mm. for facilitation methods, uh, for example, uh, which is essentially an online curriculum Mm -hmm. for the social change world. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to quickly access and navigate that and use it when you need it. Mm-hmm. That is, that gives users a reason to come back over and over again and rely on you as an organization, as a provider of tools, as a sort of thought partner in a different way than just as an organization who's telling me what they think and right. how they think things should change. It's interesting because when you say digital products, my mind went to apps and the world mm-hmm. in which you might be able to enable people to carry on the mission of the organization through... Yeah, it's a pretty broad... So some organizations are using it for uh, community organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really... There's, it's a pretty broad a- application to the idea of, of a digital product. Community organizing uh, is, is definitely one of them. Campaign and action platforms mm-hmm. uh, is another that we're seeing a lot of. Like ways to to bring together partners working in the same field, working towards similar goals, and uh, sort of building on the audience reach of all of the partners together right. in one central hub. That kind of thing is, is we're seeing a lot of as well. Last question I have for you is it seems to me that, again, broad generalization, but that the nonprofit sector really lags behind 
the for-profit sector with respect to investment and communication. And yet, from a cultural standpoint, I think there's such an opportunity for us to be so much more innovative and bold than a corporate yeah. person. So why, why are we so hesitant <laughs> to set the, set the pace when it comes to edgy and innovative communication? Because, I mean, it's a pretty, it's simple, right? It's, it's, it comes down to money and aversion to risk. Mm-hmm. Um, the nonprofit space, the social impact space in general, tends to be very, very careful with where they put their dollars. And from an optics perspective, it needs to look like the vast majority of the dollars are going to programming. Um, if organization spends drastic amounts of money on tech innovation, it's hard. It's still hard to justify in the space. So what tends to happen is, yes, the space is maybe a few years behind the general public, but what happens isn't just a direct adaptation of whatever the corporate world is doing. It's sort of a reinterpretation and reengineering to fit the needs of the space. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a sort of copycat thing. It's actually, I find it really interesting because often it's taking services or products that have cost millions of dollars in the corporate space to develop and figuring out how to do them for a fraction of the cost at a scale that's still yielding value. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of ingenuity in that that is underappreciated. Who do you think is doing really exciting work in this field? Like if my listeners wanted to look at a couple of website examples, where could they go, Dior? Okay, so two of my favorite clients I think have embraced the forward-leaning edge of digital communications are Brooklyn Defender Services, who we've developed a platform called InDefensive for, and it's it's sort of a storytelling and action hub for the criminal justice system built around criminal justice reform from the point of view of public defenders. What's cool about it is that there is a very uh, intentional use of the arts Mm. as a way to bridge a cultural divide that's often there when talking about heavy, deep issues like criminal justice. Much in the same way that a film like 13 does, you know, where they make like a complicated subject understandable and, you know, really personable through just the media of, of filmmaking. In defense of presents issues through animation, through short explainer videos, through visualizations, and through really casual, non-jargony writing. Um, I think it's a really sort of passionate way of bringing together all of those elements. The Vera Institute of Justice, I think, has also done a great job of embracing digital storytelling in a sort of interesting range that that, um, satisfies their more, like, nerdy practitioner types. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, in a, in the, the, but that also satisfies the their executive director, who's very much about culture change, narrative change. Uh, their um, director of fundraising, 
who wants to make a splash in the media and wants to create pieces that are media rich. And mm-hmm. those are those are two clients that we're working with that I think are are very savvy, or have have become very savvy over the years. I have two oh, more yes. that are, that we didn't design okay. that I can give you. There there are a lot of um, small think tanky journalist based uh, storytelling organizations cropping up that are doing interesting work as well. One is called Outrider. They're based in, I think, Wisconsin. And they are they're creating sort of story packages around some of the you know kind of biggest issues of our time and really breaking them down for the general public in really beautiful, rich uh, ways. The other uh, not in the social impact space, but um, but digital storytelling sort of outfit is the pudding. The pudding is putting together some of the best digital storytelling work out there. Uh, it's it kind of spans the gamut between social issues and pop culture, mm. but they they've really made it an exciting medium. So definitely, we look at, at their work a lot right. for inspiration. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll also link to where we can find you online. And uh, put your email address there. But thank you so much, T-Rock. My pleasure. This is fun. Thanks for having me.